Welcome to the Horror Lab, a podcast critically exploring key moments in horror, past and present, recorded at Northumbria University. I'm Steve Jones. I'm Russ Hunter. And I'm Johnny Walker. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore horror lab. Today in the lab, we'll be talking about Prevenge, a film from 2016, in which a pregnant woman, Ruth, is instructed by her unborn fetus to kill. We'll be talking about this film in relation to broader issues surrounding women in horror film and film culture, along with our special guests, Dr. Alison Pierce from the University of York and Kat Ellinger, who is the editor-in-chief at Diabolique magazine. Our topic today is women in horror. And Ali, you specialise in writing about women and horror. So welcome to the Horror Lab. I thought one of the things that we could maybe start talking about is the ways in which women have been talked about in academia Mm. um, in relation to the horror film in the past and what's influenced your writing the most. Horror studies or academically writing about horror kind of kicked off in the 1970s. And with people like Robin Wood, it was very much kind of Marxism and psychoanalysis. But it didn't really get going till the 90s. From like 1991 to 1997, there was this huge kind of international outpouring of writing about horror film and focusing on gender. People like Linda Williams started trying to theorise what happens when women watch these films. Barbara Creed, Isabel Pinedo, Carol Clover, her kind of theoretical approach around masochism and spectatorship and identification is not something I do in my own work, but Men, Women and Chainsaws just blew me away. The big thing that Carol Clover is known for is the idea of the final girl, um, the last woman standing in your classic kind of slasher film. We all write about horror very differently and the kind of things that Rona Berenstein will write about horror is absolutely the antithesis really of what Barbara Creed's writing about. Why the concentrated activity on women in horror cinema at that time, do you think? I would argue it's because it comes out at a time of a general flourishing in academia around non-white, non-male subjects. Feminist film theory continues to build throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s and it's a really coherent and concrete body of work whereas horror is definitely the newer kid on the block in the 90s having amassed these kind of methodological and critical tools horror was a genre that they turned to in the 90s at the point that it was becoming kind of more accessible it's a sense of being more aware of the lived experience of women that draws them into writing about it i would argue but by the turn of the millennium and the fond de sec, people just aren't writing about it anymore. And as you go into the early 2000s, people are writing about transnational cinema, they're writing about national cinemas, they're taking stuff like Deleuze and affect and the haptic, and horror studies goes off in a different direction again. Do you remember there was that edited collection, Defining Cult Movies? In that, there are two essays, one by Jacinda Reed and one by Joanne Hollows. mm in which they are levelling criticism at a perceived maleness mm. with not only in cult film communities but in, in academia where so-called, in air quotes, cult films are being, are being written about. The key texts in horror, it would appear, have all been largely written about women by women, which would suggest that there is an interest in the ways in which women are represented, both negatively but also in, in, in a more progressive sense as well. 
What's the state of play at the moment with female filmmakers then? Where are we? In the past five years or so, there's been a really significant global breakthrough of women directors, screenwriters and producers working in horror film. It's films like The Babadook from 2014, um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night the same year, and Evolution, which is the year after. And they're films that are kind of explicitly taking on issues of genre feminism and gender. So really in the last five years, there's been a noticeable and measurable upswing in women making these films. But I would say they're independent films. We're not talking about major studios at all. Generally, as a rule, women don't write horror or direct horror in the studio system. But earlier this year, there's been a major American legal ruling that the major studios systematically discriminate against women directors. So, you know, in relation to to the studio system in particular, but horror film more generally, what can actually be done to, to change things? How do we move forward? They're bringing out more schemes, which are explicitly for women. So Sweden... They've been, over the past few years, instigating a rule where 50% of all the film projects they fund are women-led. And as a result, far more women-made films are coming out. The BFI Film Fund, while it has its issues around diversity and inclusion, that is also explicitly trying to bring forth more women. BAFTA Elevate came out recently, which is directly for women who are already working in the industry, maybe at entry level, but they're looking to make the move onto high-end TV and features. So there are schemes in place. I just think we need more of them. One thing I'm wondering then is why the move towards changing the funding system? What's inspired that change? I presume there's been no change in the number of women wanting to make horror films. It's just that they're getting more opportunities exactly. to do so. Exactly. Um, this is a women account for 50% of film school graduates, but only something like 12% of women actually ever get to go in and make films. So we have the women who have the skills, but they're just not necessarily getting the opportunities. So do you have any sense of what has changed to lead to greater funding for female filmmakers? I think it relates much more broadly to discussions around gender inequality in films so part of my research project is saying look at all these amazing women like Annie Lilly, Amapo, um, look at Jennifer Kent, look at Alice Law, look at Julia Ducanu, look at Kate Shenton. We need to be taking notice of these women who are making these horror films but then at the same time it's still hugely difficult to be a woman filmmaker um, not just in horror but in general. Last year 92% of the top 250 films in the States were made by men. 77% didn't have women writers. In the past 10 years, only 12% of British-made films have been directed by women. And then we have horror, and you'd think it'd be potentially an emancipatory genre, so it's one that often has female leads. It's the genre that women do have the most screen time. It's the only genre where they have the most speaking parts, but it's also the genre where women are least likely to be employed in behind-the-scenes roles. We're talking here about effectively formal media economies, structures that are in place to get films made, and the institutions that represent those funding bodies are inherently sexist. I guess what I'm interested in, I mean, I'm interested in that, but what I'm also (laughs) (laughs) also interested in is if that economy and if those structures lock out women what about female filmmakers sort of working outside of that industry that want to make the independent films that you're talking about are they sort of utilizing things like social media to distribute their products to advertise their products and if so how are they going about doing that this is what my hunch is johnny um i think the low cost of technology easier access to equipment with which to film 
easier methods of distribution. It's not that expensive to get your film on Netflix. Um, we have so many streaming services. We've got Screenbox, we've got Shudder. So my suspicion is that women who have always loved horror were just making it themselves and they're distributing it themselves and they're bypassing the studios altogether because there's no space for them there. This is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the broader culture in the sense that social media seems to be an arena in which groups come together and facilitate for their own causes. So feminism has been aided greatly by social media, but at the same time so is the exact opposite, the rise in misogyny on social media. So even if there are a number of women making horror films, advertising their horror films and selling their horror films via social media and the internet, they're still held to a different standard and their films are received in a different way to male filmmakers. If 50% of the films they fund are by women-made teams, it doesn't mean they'll always be amazing, but most horror films are crap anyway. It's just that when women make films, there's so few of them, they take that burden of responsibility and are held up to so much more public scrutiny. It shouldn't be about whether their films are awesome. Everybody wants to make an awesome film. Filmmaking's really, really hard work. Regardless of whether the end product is executed well or not, it's the fact that they're doing it that's important. And the dross that I watch made by men, and no one says anything about the gender of the person who's made that film. When I think about my own area of research interest in Italian horror cinema, this is quite pertinent because there are a lot of films made, as, as horror fans will know, in the 70s and 80s in Italy, a lot of horror films, a lot of them are very derivative. They're, they're often copying and piggybacking upon the success of other international films. A lot of them are therefore quite derivative. A lot of them were shot on very low budgets. A lot of them, frankly, are not that good. They've become canon for Italian horror fans, but objectively they're not great films necessarily. But nobody picks upon a filmmaker like Andrea Bianchi, for instance, and says, he's a man, that's the issue. That's never really been seen as the problem. People look for other reasons. They say, well, low budgets or tight shooting schedules, etc., etc. Exactly. When you feel that the major cultural institutions are close to you, you're just going to do it your way as best you can. And it might be that that's all you do do, or it might be at some point one of the grand high-up people notice you and pull you into the fold, and then you can work on the inside. But in the meantime, I think you just have to get your head down and get on with it. And if you want to make a film, you should just go make a film, regardless of waiting for anyone to give you permission. There's an adage that... and I. I don't know whether this is something that independent filmmakers say to make themselves feel better about their limited budgets, but because of budgetary constraints, they have to become more creative. So in a sense, being excluded or being an outsider to the system might allow female filmmakers to find a uniquely female voice, a kind of horror that reflects women's experiences in a way that we don't see within mainstream studio horror filmmaking. I'm talking about a, a new paradigm of horror. Being an outsider is conducive to horror. And what I'm, I would love if what happens is what you're thinking, that as a result of the access to technology and access to distribution and the kind of media and horror literacy that we have online now, if that means we end up with not just a new wave, because a new wave suggests that it's going to end, but if we end up with a new kind of paradigm with these women filmmakers creating horror in the way they want to see it because their budget's so low, they don't have as much creative interference, I think that would be amazing. And it would have to come together as a paradigm. 
because that's the only way it's going to gain momentum in order to change the kinds of films that are being made within the studio system because otherwise it's just people internalizing or making do with or being happy with their oppressed state mm. i wonder if part of the problem is the perception of who watches horror films mm. um, because part of the problem can be a perception that all horror fans are men and a certain kind of man too we know from our, from our own experience of going to horror film festivals where actually visibly you can see who's in the audience, that the gender split at those festivals at least is, is fairly equal between men and women. In short, there are a lot of female horror fans, but that's often forgotten. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting what, you, what you're saying about perceptions of audiences because you know some of the research that I've done into sort of British film culture, if you look at the data provided by organisations like the, the UK Film Council or now the BFI, when they started collecting audience data in around 2003 up till around 2010, if you look at the films that are theatrically released, that are horror films, the audience data that they provide you with would indicate that it's mostly men that go to horror films. Uh, apart from The Descent, which is a film which is made by men, but is the, the cast isn't is women. entirely women. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I think that's interesting because sometimes people say things like, oh, well, women are more interested in supernatural horror and more cerebral horror films. Well, actually, if you look at The Descent, that is clearly not the case. Lizzie Frank, who was a programmer at Edinburgh Film Festival, started up an, a label called Ministry of Fear, that was to produce, and I'm quoting her directly here, girly horror films, which were about ghosts. One of the films that materialised out of this was Trauma with Colin Firth, who's associated with Bridget Jones's diary. I and don't it's know like, how it can be a horror with Colin Firth in it. It's like, like literally impossible. <laughs> that is well, the horror. <laughs> it's like women like Colin Firth, so they'll go to see He's this so horror dreamy. film. He's so dreamy. Yeah, and, I, and it's that sort of patronising attitude that I think sort of really lets the industry down. But my point about the notion that audiences are predominantly male is also an attitude that's held by the industry as well, at least some of the DVD producers that I spoke to. I think it's about public consumption of films as well. And for me, the idea of horror film festivals is very much in line with what Russ is saying, which it feels much more even. Now, loads of women who love horror go to festivals, they go see it, whereas the kind of data that maybe John is talking about, about mainstream theatrical big studio releases, maybe it's a different kind of audience that they're seeing coming through. But what I also wanted to throw into the mix was academic conferences around horror film, something like Cine Excess, which I went to the first few years on. And there would literally be points where me and um, Beth Johnson, who's a professor at Leeds Uni, we'd be like literally the only women in the room. So even though I find it ridiculous that they think women don't watch horror and even though uh, film festivals will have a good mix and something like The Final Girls which is a feminist film collective dedicated to exploring horror even though that's all going on uh, academic conferences around horror is still predominantly men Academia's got a long stuffy history of being sort of men in a room pontificating Yeah Just like us But, but <laughs> what you're talking about here reminds me of some research that Bridget Cherry did in the late 90s around female audiences the sample of women she talked about really didn't like a lot of the things that male horror fans were doing or the kinds of things that they were interested in. And I remember she singled out the tone of the Dark Side magazine. It's sort of like, ooh, uh, sort of carry-on, bawdy, journalistic turns of phrase. And also it's preoccupation with um, scantily clad women. Like having not moved past like the hammer kind of yeah. ever at all. That's not to say that the Dark Side or these other magazines are not being read by women. But I looked to a publication like Fangoria, which mm. has ceased printing now and is exclusively online. And I wonder, is the reason that the dark side is surviving? Is it because it's yeah. sort of looking to the past and it's got that nostalgia vibe for a certain demographic? And one person who can shed some light on this topic is our next guest, 
Kat Ellinger. Kat is the editor-in-chief of Diabolique magazine. She's the co-host of Their Daughters in Darkness podcast. And she's also written for Fangoria and Scream magazine, as well as contributing to several of Arrow's releases, including special features for the female prisoner Scorpion box set. So Kat, we've just been discussing genre magazines. Since you're editor-in-chief of Diabolique, what sets Diabolique apart from some of those other publications, particularly with regard to women in horror? The main ethos of the magazine has been to do something that's removed from that radish fan writing, mm-hmm. which a lot of the genre press seems to revel in. So they wanted to do something different. They always have a semi-academic slant. The main difference now I've come on board is I've brought in a lot of women that weren't previously writing for the magazine. I mean, they, they've always had women included. Obviously, I've been there since 2013. But it was still predominantly male up until quite recently. We just try and do something a bit different and give a fresh angle on things, especially when it comes to feminist approaches to horror, which you don't really find in the genre press. It's not something that we set out and said, we're going to be a feminist magazine, not at all. It's just... I think when I came on board and then through my writing and stuff, it sort of attracted more women. I do get approached by a lot of women who aren't particularly confident to pitch to genre press. You do get put off by the fact that it's probably, or it was when I started, maybe 90% male. So do you think that some of your female contributors have felt more comfortable approaching Diabolique because it's held by a woman? Yeah, I mean, I have actually had women writers say that to me. You know, that they felt confident to approach a female editor-in-chief, whereas other magazines were very male-dominated. They didn't feel that they would fit in there or that their opinions would be accepted. So I adopt them. That's a big part of why I do it, I think. Do you feel like you've got a responsibility to encourage female writers to contribute to Diabolique because you're in a position to do so? Of course, yeah. I do feel the responsibility. Some of our more feminist writers have had nasty things said about them online. Recently, we had someone called a feminazi over a very good article. So I do feel quite protective as well, that I won't tolerate that. And you're right, because there's more pressure on you as a female, I think. If you get one thing wrong, there's a certain tribe of male fans. They feel threatened. They don't want women there, and they make that clear. Now, they're waiting to have a go. So I feel responsible for them, especially if something's been said. I think things are changing, definitely. I think there's a shift, especially in female filmmaking. I think a large part of that is because of social media. There is a change uh, with women now finally getting a voice and getting a platform to have that voice. Rue Morgue has a female editor, and there's a lot of female podcasters, and you're generally seeing the profile of women rise, obviously not at the rate that it should be, in my Mm. opinion, but it's getting there. So it's a lot different to five years ago. You recently contributed to a collection called Lost Girls, which is uh, an all-female collection on Jean Roland. How did that project come about? My associate editor, Sam Deegan, put that together with Mm -hmm. Kayla, um, Janice, Spectacular Optical. The idea was, you know, especially in your occult, which is where I tend to specialise, that's an extremely male-dominated area. You know, a lot of younger female writers want to write about slashers, and they're all of the Carol Clover school. And so there's not a lot of interest from female writers to write about Jess Frankel's or more than (laughs) generally ethos of the book was to be female writers given a feminist interpretation of John Moran. There hasn't been anything like that before. 
most articles you'll find on John Molan are male, and they're written about the women and how beautiful they are. So I'm hoping that it encourages more women. I saw some girls actually on Twitter talking about doing an all-female Jalo book, and I was like, yeah, go for it, go, right. go for it, do it. We need different opinions. There are some really great male writers as well, like Steam Thrower, for yeah. example, and, um, and I love Tim Lucas's works. But they tend to go the extra mile. You do get this very standard genre writing that's never really offered anything to me. I'm not interested in a bunch of facts. Yeah. And I'm certainly not interested in what you were watching in the 1970s. A lot of reminiscing, and there's nothing I can connect to in it, personally. I did have a guy really crying and getting angry at me once in a Hammer Horror Forum group on Facebook. Cause he mm-hmm. didn't see why we had to talk about class themes or, you know, socio-political themes. He just wanted to say whether he liked the film or not. So like, well, you don't have to join in, mate. It's fine. <laughs> well, I don't want people discussing these things. And he got quite angry about it. And finally, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Well, I've still got my Daughters of Darkness podcast, commentary work, and, you know, picked up some commentaries on some really bizarre films. But it's great because we started off with Borovchek's Story of Sim. We did all the Colours of the Dark yeah. for Shameless. And I think the only one that's been announced is Bed Spattered Bride for Mondo Macabre. And then I have my book, which I'm working on at the moment, for the Devil's Advocate series on Daughters of Darkness, the film. Great. And I recently had some great interviews with Harry Kummel and Daniel Wieme. We have a new issue of Diabolique, which is themed on folk horror, uh, witchcraft and fairy tales. And we're celebrating 40 years of Suspiria, which the wonderful Alexandra Helen Nichols has written a big piece on that. Who did the Devil's Advocates book on Suspiria. So we've spoken about women writing about horror in the popular sphere. We've spoken about female academics writing about horror. We've spoken about women behind the camera, making horror films, being funded to make films. What we've not yet spoken too much about is the representation of women on screen in horror. And in order to facilitate our discussion, we thought we'd focus on the film Revenge, which is not only written and directed by a woman, Alice Lowe, but is also about pregnancy, and so raises a lot of issues about women's experiences. It really affected me, Revenge. Mm. You've got a pregnant woman who was the the focus of the film, and she's distressed throughout. There was something really moving about that whole premise in spite of the fact that she's a serial killer and yeah. it's really really funny it was like i've never really experienced anything like it before were there specific bits that made you feel emotional or kind of got you or... yeah at the end of the film when there's like an aerial shot of her newborn child mm. so it, it grounded me as a viewer all of a sudden and she makes a whole point out of saying she's just normal she's just a normal little baby she almost sounds disappointed I think the film gave a really good sense of this idea that pregnancy, of course, which is this utterly natural thing, is really quite a, a difficult and quite a strange thing for parents to go through. In that sense, the horror is grounded in something that's really real. The film really plays upon fears you might have about pregnancy as a, as a parent, but also what might come after that. When you're writing stories, what you're trying to think about is your characters have this whole life and they've been born, they've grown up, they're going to die and we're just meeting them at this one point when in their life where something crazy is happening and that's what the story's about. The ending's arguably quite open but I wondered what you all thought to the ending and where you thought it was going. I don't think she's going back to the hospital. That's what really bothered me. I read it as, you know, she gets dressed, she's off, she's done. 
You're not very easy to track down. I felt a little bit like Sherlock. <laughs> you was like the disappearing woman. Lady Lucan, I think we'll call you from now on. You have who she thought her child was going to be, who she thought was talking to her, which is a huge contrast to this quiet, small, little pink crying thing that's just a real baby, a normal baby. They're essentially two different people because... It doesn't fit with her version of reality. Don't want to know what's in there. I'm scared of her. Throughout, she's thought the baby's controlling her and she makes explicit reference to her just being a vehicle and the baby being the mastermind. Why are you telling me that? Well, just so that you know you have absolutely no control over your mind or your body anymore. (gasps) This one does. She's got all the control now. Baby knows what to do. Baby will tell you what to do. I think she already does. Remember who's the mastermind? You wouldn't have done it without me, would you? I'm I'm not even in control. It's like I'm some crap banged out car and she's driving. I'm just the vehicle. Honestly, it's like a hostile takeover. And when the baby is born... She comes to the realisation that the baby has just been a normal baby all along. When the midwife says... Look, I know the caesarean wasn't meant to happen, but when it's life or death, we have to make that cut. At that point, we're supposed to think that Ruth comes to the realisation that on the cliff, the climbers had to make a choice about who was going to live or die, and they had to cut the cord. That's the way the parallel works. I understand that now. At that point, I think we're supposed to believe that Ruth is over her anger and that she will change. But then she abandons her baby. And I take that as being because it's never really been about the baby. You see, I thought I was doing it all for her, but I wasn't. I was doing it for myself. And I've only just realised that. Ruth comes to the realisation that it's always really been about Ruth. And that's why I think she's never going back to the hospital. I haven't really considered the birth in terms of the plans. I think that the way that it represents... Not just pregnancy, but the ways in which pregnancy is talked about in society, yeah. I think, is pretty incredible, actually. You've got the central character who um, is pregnant and materialises that. She hadn't even told her partner that she was pregnant before he died, which would suggest that it's not a planned pregnancy as well. Did he know? I found out on the day he died. And if that's the case, she has to carry this sort of burden mm. of being pregnant now you could read that as as a comment potentially on attitudes towards abortion so she sort of feels like she has to carry this baby we've talked about some of the the really serious aspects of course to the film but what i really liked about it was the dark humor that comes across what i found really interesting was this idea of babies being these tiny small dictators that really change your life i mean they just take over your life really i mean you have to kind of hand yourself over like some kind of human sacrifice to their will and that they're this small, supposedly helpless thing that make you do all sorts of strange things. Make you do awful things. I succumb to your will. Baby knows best. For me, the film plays on that really well in a, in a really dark and, and really quite clever way at times. It's good on the ambivalence of pregnancy. There's a lineage of pregnancy horror, isn't there? But it's usually written by blokes, directed by blokes. I've read a lot of literature written by women talking about their experiences of pregnancy and early motherhood, who talk about the feeling of invisibility. Because one might think after giving birth, the baby would no longer restrict one's autonomy anymore. 
but as I understand it, many women experience the feeling of being ignored in favour of their baby. So people focus their attention on the babies, not the mothers in everyday conversation and focus their gaze on the baby rather than on the mother. And it's all, it's all about the baby then, not about whether the mother's like going mental. Selfish bastards. No consideration. We may as well not exist. But shh, it's okay. I'm here. I love that. I'm so glad you just said that because, what? like, watching the film, that's that's how I felt about it. Ruth's character was always secondary to the baby. She's so, a vehicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think that the fact that everybody patronises her, DJ Dan is, you know, an, an <laughs> abhorrent man. It's an amazing sequence. Yeah, it's a, fa- it's a fabulous sequence. I fucking love fat birds. It's got a little bit more about you. Uh, fucking, you're a little bit more open-minded. So you don't mind what people do to you, do you? Um, but she's always either determined by the fact that she's pregnant or people deal with the baby first and her second but ruth's also been doing that to herself all the way through there's one point at which the midwife says to ruth you have got to start thinking about what's best it's all about you and your choices you have to decide what is right and what's wrong. And the first thing she does in the next scene is looks at a photo of her dead partner and says, Send me a sign. And so she's not even taking control of her life then. So throughout it seems that Ruth has felt like what's controlling her is either coming from some external source, it's that her partner's been killed and that's supplying her motivation, or it's something else that's got a different kind of autonomy. In this case, it's the baby telling her what to do. But after giving birth to the baby and finding out it's this autonomous being, but one that hasn't been telling her what to do, Ruth comes to the realisation that it's her herself that's been dictating what she does. And it's only at that point that she gains some control over the situation, or realises she has some control over the situation. I know exactly what you mean, so even though she makes decisions all the way through, it's because of options that are being presented to her, not through things that she's getting to do on her own, and then her walking out of the hospital is the first time that she knowingly makes a decision about where things are going. Most revenge films work on the basis of there being some kind of event that transforms the everyday individual into an avenger. And either the narrative will focus on that or the narrative will begin with that and then focus on a different kind of arc where everything either goes wrong for the protagonist or they become a kind of superhuman. Whereas within Prevenge, they make these lovely parallels between being pregnant and giving birth as this kind of transformative state of being. I think I'm changing into something else. It's because of you. And the baby becoming something different, seemingly being malevolent and then being presumably innocent. And Ruth coming to realise that the anger has always really just been within Ruth herself. And it wasn't anything to do with the external events at all. I don't think we're supposed to believe that most people would respond in the same way that Ruth does to the initial events, that her partner dies and then she starts killing people. And I think also part of Ruth's arc is that she comes to the realisation that what she's doing is abnormal as well. And so Ruth really comes to realise that she was always the kind of person who would react in that way. It was always just part of her character rather than being induced specifically by the external event. There are also a number of interesting parallels between the plot of Prevenge and Aeschylus's Eumenides. The plot of Eumenides is basically that Orestes kills his mother, and that's already an interesting place to start in relation to Prevenge which makes these odd parallels between matricides in Eumenides and 
pregnancy and giving birth and being the homicidal mother in Revenge. But Orestes kills his mother, and on doing so, he unleashes these Furies, which are these demonic female figures. Love the Furies. And we see those figures represented within Revenge in the clips of the black and white film that Ruth watches. And that film's called Crimes Without Passion from 1934. I have mascara days like that. Very smudged. <laughs> and in that film, a lawyer kills his unfaithful partner and unleashes these Furies and is haunted by them. So the same thing happens in Eumenides. Orestes kills his mother and he unleashes these Furies who haunt him. And eventually Orestes takes sanctuary in Athena's court. And the Furies demands that Orestes is put on trial for killing his mother. And Orestes' defence in that trial is that he has no responsibility for killing his mother because Apollo told him to do so. So there we get a parallel between Orestes' defence of his actions and the kind of defence that Ruth offers herself during Revenge justifying the killings because the baby is telling her to do so and she has no responsibility. In Eumenides, Orestes is found innocent, he's acquitted, and the Furies go into this state of rage and threaten to destroy Athens. And there we get a different set of parallels between Tom, the climbing instructor, being found innocent and Ruth's rage that he's been found innocent. And you got away with it, scot-free! In Eumenides, eventually, the Furies are pacified by being given a state of honour within Athens. And at that point, they transform, they become the Eumenides, the benevolent ones. So there's also a parallel between the Furies being the baby in Revenge, and just as the Furies transform into being these kindly, benevolent spirits, when Ruth gives birth to a baby, the baby is also seemingly transformed into this kindly spirit. So Ruth is seemingly tormented by these Furies, i.e. the baby, who goads her into killing throughout the film. As I say, what I think is interesting about this metaphoric parallel is that Ruth comes to this realisation that it's not these Furies that have been unleashed by the external event, the death of her partner, but that the Fury has always been within her. And actually, in revenge films, we don't often get that kind of realisation. And the only reason I came to any of this is because halfway through the film, this is when Ruth bumps into the climbing instructor Tom on the street and runs away. The baby quotes lines from Eumenides and those lines are sung by the Furies within Eumenides. He hath slipped from the net whom we chased. He hath escaped us who should be our prey. O'ermastered by slumber we sank and our quarry hath stolen away. And there's no indication where these lines are from but I think it gives us an important clue as to how to read Ruth and her actions. It's not just that Revenge retells Eumenides in a present-day context with a pregnant woman as a protagonist instead of Orestes. It's that there are a lot of interesting reversals and conflations within that parallel, and it really enlivens and enriches the character of Ruth for me. It's certainly not a perfect parallel, confusing the Furies and Apollo as telling Ruth what to do, or confusing Orestes being acquitted with Tom the Climbing Instructor's innocence and Ruth's understanding of herself as being like Orestes, being tormented by the Furies and being innocent, perhaps does slightly too much in bringing elements together. But nevertheless, that parallel enriched my understanding of the film in ways that I hadn't anticipated before seeing it. Part of as well what I really enjoy about it is just showing women being like messy and badly behaved. And it's not that they're abject, monstrous feminine creatures, there's just a real pleasure in watching that. You know, we don't get to see a lot of that on screen. It's amazing how much film criticism 
reverts back to those old stereotypes when you do get a, a female character such as the one you just described. I yeah. remember reading a, an article in Cineast. The male writer makes a flippant remark about Sarah, the central character of The Descent, who was obviously a badass in that film. He sort of says, oh, for women to be strong in horror films, they have to be masculinised. And I'm just thinking, well, can't you not just have, like, a, a strong woman? Or just a woman. If you've got any comments or questions about this episode, you can contact us on Twitter at the underscore horror lab. Kev Bickerdyke's been in touch uh, with this question. He says, in the last episode, you spoke about the retrospective reclassification of films, suggesting that the horror blanket might envelope films that were previously generically thought of as being perhaps non-horror. Do you believe it is possible to retrospectively de-horrify films? So there are films that were made in the past that were classified as horror films at the time that we would no longer necessarily think of as being horror films because conventions of the genre have shifted or our sensibilities have shifted somewhat since that era. And there are certainly films in the past that we would consider not to be scary by our standards anymore. Whether that would eventually lead to a reclassification of a film or whether there have been cases of that happening, I'm not entirely certain. But I can certainly see the plausibility of that happening. There's a whole body of academic research on this already. If you look at Mike Yankovich and Tim Snelson's work on the 1940s, the stuff that we think of as film noir and women's film at the time were marketed as horror. It changes, doesn't it, according to different eras? This is all tied up in debates about how we do precisely define horror because if at the time of release something is defined as horror, is it then forever a horror film? And I guess that's the, the basis of, of Kev's question. If horror is defined as something that perhaps scares us, that plays upon particular fears in a particular moment in time, of course as history changes, society changes and we change, necessarily what scares us, what we feel is horrific, is going to change. Mm-hmm.